You could be seated. Well, as Chase mentioned earlier, today we come to one of the darkest passages in all the Bible, in Genesis 18 and 19. So turn there with me if you would. It is breathtaking. It is unrelenting. From scene to scene, it seems to go from bad to worse. The first time you read this stuff, you can't believe that it's really in the Bible. Whatever else someone might say about the Bible, it is honest. It is real. It is painfully honest and real at times. It certainly doesn't whitewash the human condition. It portrays sin and wickedness with all the complexity and painful consequences. After all, this is a messed up world. God made it good, but ever since we've sinned, it is a messed up and broken world. And we don't need just today's headlines or dark documentaries or Dateline episodes to prove that to us. The Bible records stories from long ago, millennia ago, that vividly reveal that to us. This is a messed up world. But these dark stories in our Bible also show us a good God at work behind it all. A good and just and righteous and merciful God. And so in the darkness there is hope. There is grace. God is at work. And there's hope in part because it's real. The Bible is not only real, meaning brutally honest, the Bible is real, meaning it is historical and true. It isn't a book of myths or fables. Take, for instance, this story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. It is hardly disputed that the Dead Sea Valley before the second millennium B.C. was one of the most fertile and plush lands in the world. And since about the time of Abraham, it has been one of the most desolate, most hostile environments on the planet. Something changed. Whether it was a meteor shower, an air burst, an earthquake or something purely miraculous, we know something happened that changed the topography of that land now for almost 4,000 years. And the Bible tells us that God did that. God tells, the Bible tells us that God did that because, well, because of a time and a place of extreme wickedness. It's a story told with painstaking detail in Genesis 18 and 19, but then a story that is returned to dozens of times in the Bible later on. And so it's real, it's true, it's dark, and apparently it's important. It's ongoingly relevant. So let's get after it. 
We'll look at Genesis 18, starting in verse 16 through the end of chapter 19 today. That's a chapter and a half. And we'll take it in four sections. And with each of these sections, here's what we'll do. I'll give you a heading, an outline, and then we'll read that section, and then we'll unpack it together until we get to the next heading. So here's the first. We could call it God's involvement, Abraham's intercession, which each of these four sections, we've got kind of two parts to it. In this section, God's involvement, Abraham's intercession. Look down in your Bibles with me to chapter 18, starting in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find Sodom, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, but who am I but dust and ashes? Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of the forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. God's involvement, Abraham's intercession. Recall from last week, that we were introduced to these three men of mystery at the front of chapter 18. 
And I suggested last week that at least one of the three beings is apparently a physical manifestation of God, the Lord, Yahweh. Chapter 19, verse 1, as we'll see in just a bit, seems to tell us that two of these beings are angels. Now, last week we saw these three figures, the Lord and two angels, come to Abraham and Sarah to encourage their faith and to rehearse the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to them again. But starting in verse 16 of chapter 18, the mood moves towards something much more ominous as these men turn their gaze toward Sodom and they begin heading toward that infamous city. That infamous city, we've learned about it before. It's not just infamous because of chapter 19. It was infamous before chapter 19. Back in Genesis 13, Abraham's nephew, Lot, parted company with Uncle Abraham. And he sought a city that was famous for its lush, abundant wealth. But it was also a city that was famously wicked. Chapter 13, verse 13. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. It was back then that we had the parenthetical comment. This was before God destroyed Sodom, telling us what was to come, and now here is when it's finally going to come. God engages in a dialogue with himself about whether he'll include Abraham in what's going on. Verses 17 and following. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? After all, I've chosen him to be the father of these covenant promises. Rehearsed again here, God says to himself, shouldn't Abraham know what I'm up to? Shouldn't the the leader of the nations know what I'm about to do? Shouldn't the one, the father of faith, be able to tell his children and their children what it was God was up to? Of course, this dialogue here, this dialogue with God himself is not for God's sake. He's not really wondering. He knows what he's going to do. It's here for our sake. We're getting tuned in to the mind of God and his deliberations. And so the Lord decides to tell Abraham what he's up to. To tell him of the grave sins happening in Sodom and that God is going to investigate. So our God is involved in the affairs of men. He sees, he knows, he cares, he acts. And he also involves Abraham in what he's doing. Do you know that three times in the Bible it says that Abraham was the friend of God? It says it uniquely of him. He's the friend of God. And what better place to see that friendship in action than right here in chapter 18? By the way, I wonder if Jesus had some of these themes of Abrahamic friendship and involvement in mind when he said to his disciples in John 15, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. A servant doesn't know what his master is up to, 
But I have now called you friends for all that I've heard from my father. I have made known to you. He told them what he was about to do because they were friends. That friendship really works both ways. Not in a perfect symmetry, of course. We're not equals with God. God is the boss, but there's both humility and boldness in friendship with God. And Abraham models both of those for us in his conversation with God. He stood before God. He drew near to God. And then he dared to negotiate with God as he interceded for the sinful city of Sodom. He asked the Lord, what if there were 50 righteous people in Sodom? Would you destroy the whole land then? God says, no, I, I, I wouldn't do that. He pleads with God according to God's character. Verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The Lord concedes. It's amazing. Abraham doubles down. He asks for more, but, but cautiously. Verse 27, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? Nevertheless, how about 45? The Lord concedes to that. And fast forward, there are a total of six rounds of negotiations and renegotiations between Abraham and the Lord, eventually getting down to the number 10. If there are 10 righteous in Sodom, will you spare the whole city? God concedes. At first, we might be a little annoyed with Abraham's negotiations with God. It seems annoying. It seems pesky. It seems pestering. But I think we can actually learn a lot from Abraham here. He's humble in his prayers for the lost. He's not presumptuous. He doesn't demand. He knows he's asking for a lot. He knows his place. But as the friend of God, he is bold in his prayers. He leans on what he knows about God and his ways and his righteousness and justice and banks on it. It's like he knows what James later teaches about prayer. You have not because you ask not. And so Abraham keeps asking. Abraham intercedes for sinners here. He's playing a priestly role in going between God and the nations. He's blessing the nations, just like God promised he would. And he asks God to save the wicked on account of the righteous. Three times, God himself speaks of his willingness to save the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous. This gives us just the slightest hint of a theme that becomes massive and decisive and central in the Bible later on. That God saves by a substitute. He saves on account of another. 
He saves the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous. The unrighteous are ultimately saved on account of one righteous one. Not 50, not 10. Spoiler alert, there aren't even 10 righteous in Sodom. No, not one. Not in Sodom, but there is one coming. 1 Peter 3.18 spoke of the just for the unjust. Christ died for sins once. The just for the unjust to bring us to God. And that's our hope. That's the big picture. That's the story of the Bible. And here we have just a little, little hint of substitution. Well, back to Sodom. As we turn the page to chapter 19 now, we see, secondly, Sodom's corruption, Lot's compromise. Sodom's corruption, Lot's compromise. Look down in your Bibles as I read chapter 19, verses 1 to 11. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. They said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. This is Sodom's corruption and Lot's compromise. Anticipating that principle that gets unpacked later on in the Mosaic Law, that there is no confirming the guilty without two or more witnesses, God sends two angels to check out Sodom on the ground. And of course, God already knows firsthand the state of Sodom. He doesn't need angelic proof or witness, but he condescends to send them and have them report so that Abraham would know and so that we, the readers, would know that God is righteous and just and accurate in his assessment and in his judgment. 
It is evening, and Lot is at the city gate, the place of prominence among the men of the community. Lot is a man of Sodom now. He's a man of prominence. He's a man with a big house, large enough that it has its own outer gate. So the promise and the allure of wealth and ease and prosperity has paid off for Lot, at least for now. Lot hasn't lost all of his moral instincts in settling into Sodom. For one, he knows to show hospitality to strangers like Abraham, who just recently entertained the same heavenly beings with food and drink. Lot does similarly, though maybe not to the same extent. Abraham prepared cakes and a calf and curds. Lot pulled out some unleavened bread, crackers. <laughs> Nevertheless, the nice evening of crackers is cut short with this great clamor outside of Lot's home. The men of the city, every last one of them, did you catch that? All the people to the last man surrounded the house. They called Lot. Where are the men who came to you? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Not get to know them. This is knowing them in the biblical sense, the sexual sense. What is happening here is all that we suspect it is, but would hope that it's not. It is sexual. It is same-sex. It is attempted rape. It is rampant. It is citywide. It wasn't a few bad eggs having a one-time crazy night. Sodom's corruption had reached breathtaking proportions. Homosexuality was not the only sin in Sodom. It was not the only sin for which judgment would come. Listen to Ezekiel 16 commenting on Sodom many years later. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Ah, what does Ezekiel say? What does God say through Ezekiel? She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty, and they did abomination before me, God says. Abomination, yes, that's what Sodom is famous for or infamous for. But also, these were people filled with pride and pleasures and selfishness. And that shows us something about the downward spiral of sin. The men of Sodom didn't lead relatively normal, quiet lives, and then one evening, out of the blue, get a wild hair idea. Apparently, pride and the pursuit of pleasure can be seedlings 
that grow into ravenous perversions, but not overnight. It happens step by step. John Owen, the Puritan, said this, sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, it might have its own course. If it might have its own course, it would go to the utmost sin of that kind. Every sin, might it have its course, would become its height. It is never satisfied, Owen said. Or as someone else put it, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. You know who said that one? Ravi Zacharias. He said that before it became public that he was living a life of scandal, scandal and sexual abuse. Now, not every sin is just as bad as another, but all sin is of the same stuff. It's like cancer. There are different kinds of cancer, different locations in the body where cancer grows. There are different degrees of cancer, but it is all cancer. Sin is cancer. Sin shouldn't be something that we take out and enjoy on our own terms, thinking we've got it under control, no one knows, we've got it on a leash, so it's okay. No, sin is crouching at the door like a freaking tiger, and it, des- it, it seeks to devour you and me. So look at what the end of the road of sinful desires looks like here in Genesis 19 to help you not play on that street, not stand on the curb and put a toe in. I said that homosexuality is not the only sin in Sodom. But let me be clear, especially because it's not clear in our culture today, it is sin. It is. You could look to Romans 1 for clarity on that. Or Jude, the book of Jude in the New Testament, commenting on Sodom and Gomorrah. says, Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Unnatural. It's unnatural because of God's intention and design for things that he made, as it's stated back in Genesis 1 and 2 at creation. Remember from Genesis 1 and 2 that there was that repeated pattern of two-ness that God has put into his creation all over the place. There are pairs which complement each other. There's earth and sky. There's land and sea. There's moon and sun, light and darkness. These things go together. They are like opposites, is the word. And God made male and female, husband and wife. They go together. Friend, if you struggle with 
desire for the same sex, you shouldn't be terribly surprised. This is a fallen world, and we're fallen in it. But those desires are not the way it's supposed to be, not what God has designed for us. If you struggle with unwanted desires, you're not alone, regardless of your inclination towards one sex or another. Really, it's all of us. We're all sexually broken one way or another. We're all in need of sexual forgiveness and sexual healing as with every other part of our beings and our lives. Friend, if you struggle with unwanted desires, you can be honest with a pastor or a good Christian friend about your complexities your history, your feelings, there is help. But we do no favors to anyone by denying what the Bible plainly says about sexuality and gender in marriage. We can't change it, we can't hide it, we can't sweep it under the rug, we can't dismiss it as archaic, no matter how silly and rare it seems. In our culture. And we also do no favors to anyone by thinking that the problems of this world are all out there, just them, that kind, those people. No, God help us. We're all sinners, and there is none righteous, no, not one. And Lot, actually, a person from within the religious community of sorts, a man who still believed that some things were wrong, he should be proof enough for us that sin isn't just always out there with them, that kind. Because we come to Lot's compromise, and Lot does the unthinkable here. Under unprecedented circumstances, Lot does the unthinkable. He so prioritizes hospitality and the protection of his guests that he's willing to offer up his two virgin daughters to the sex-crazed mob. He literally says to the men about his own daughters, do to them as you please. He trades one good thing, one essential thing, protection of his daughters, in for another good thing, hospitality of strangers. Now, he should have just said to these men, no, you can't have the men, and no, you can't have my daughters, and no, you're not going to get me, and trusted God with the outcome. By the way, there's just so much low-hanging fruit there for us if we'll think about it. Just the principle that we never need to compromise on one good thing in order to pursue another good thing. Just think of how that applies to politics or investments or parenting or your marriage. I leave it to you to think of specifics. 
Thankfully, Lot's offer of his daughters was rebuffed. Verse 9, the townsmen decide to grab Lot instead. But then, miraculously, the angels step in. They grab Lot and they strike the Sodomites with blindness. Verse 11, Lot is rescued despite his horrible compromise. And then in almost horror movie-like fashion, we read that the blinded men of Sodom wore themselves out groping for the door, trying to get whoever they could. Great corruption, great compromise, and thirdly, we come to Lot's deliverance and Sodom's destruction. Lot's deliverance, Sodom's destruction. Let's read on in chapter 19, starting in verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when the Lord came to Zoar. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived." Lot's deliverance in Sodom's destruction. Lot's deliverance happened by the skin of his teeth. He warned his sons-in-law of the coming judgment, but they thought he was jesting. 
Crazy old Maurice, they must have said. The next morning, Lot was urged by the angels, escape now, up, they said. But he lingered. The angels had to seize him, lead him by the hand, bring him outside the city. The Lord being merciful to him, it says, verse 16, indeed. The angel specifically told him to escape to the hills, verse 17. But it's then that Lot engages in his own negotiation with the heavenly council. Like Abraham, who negotiated God down to 10 days, Lot negotiates. But unlike Abraham, who negotiated selflessly for the city, Lot negotiates selfishly to retain city life and comforts. Please, let me not escape to the hills, but to that small city close by, Zoar. Lot is a man of the city. I can relate, to be honest. I like a good hotel. I don't like the hills. I don't like camping. I certainly don't like caves. But Lot here is a man whose affections were so tied to wealth and prosperity and convenience and really worldliness that he can't imagine just escaping. He has to escape and protect comforts. Uncle Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees not knowing where he was going. But even with judgment looming and angels pleading and pulling on him, Lot is thinking real estate options. He's not thinking of fleeing from the wrath to come. Mercifully, the angels allow Lot to flee to Zoar. Again, the Lord being merciful to him. That's the banner over this whole scene. God being so patient with this double-minded, slow-to-obey guy. And yet he did obey. It was reluctant, but it was eventual. He went ultimately willingly. The same couldn't be said for his stupid sons-in-law. Lot went. He didn't look back. He escaped. He left Sodom just as he needed to. And perhaps this is why Peter in the New Testament calls Lot righteous. He says, righteous Lot. God rescued righteous Lot. Righteous? Did Peter read the whole story? Was he, was he really righteous? Well, Lot wasn't fully righteous. Remember, no one's righteous. No, not one. Especially not Lot. It gets worse even after this. But he was relatively righteous. And I think that's mainly Peter's point. God rescued righteous Lot who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked around him. Is what Peter says. He was better than the other men of Sodom, if only slightly better. And he was righteous, at least in this sense, at the very least, in that he believed and trusted enough, barely enough, but enough to be rescued. 
I honestly don't know if we'll see Lot in heaven. And you probably shouldn't spend too much time on that debate in your community groups. But at the very least, he was saved from this specific judgment. And at the very least, he is an encouragement for those of us of weak faith, inconsistent faith, slow obedience. He's a man apparently with enough faith to flee from the wrath to come. The same cannot be said of Lot's wife. The angels warned the family. Verse 17, do not look back or stop anywhere. Fast forward to verse 26. Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Most likely this was not some sort of little temporary, momentary glance back to Sodom like your eyes couldn't touch Sodom being destroyed and you live. Apparently, she delayed. She lingered too long. She looked back longingly. She was unwilling to let go of that place that she had come to love. She loved the world and the things of the world. And the love of the Father was not in her. And so she did not escape. Jesus, in Luke 17 gives us the second shortest sentence in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. Remember her look. Remember her longing for Sodom in the midst of rescue. And remember, she did not escape. Now make no mistake, Sodom's destruction was just and righteous. We may not understand that, but we have to receive that and believe that if we'll take God at his word. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham asked. He will. He has. He did. Even on that day when Sodom and Gomorrah had sulfur and fire rain down on them from the Lord when he overthrew those cities. He is just and righteous. And if we struggle with that, we probably don't understand the seriousness of sin or the devastating effects of sin in this world. Perhaps we don't understand that God is ultimately merciful and just to stop sinners from getting worse. He does have his limits. The flood in Genesis 6, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 were previous examples of that. That's partly why Sodom's destruction is so reminiscent of that flood back in Genesis 6. There are about eight or so literary parallels and similarities between those two stories of judgment. I leave you to go find them on your own. God never said after the flood that he would not judge the world again. He said he'd never flood the world again, and here he doesn't, but he judges the world indeed. And yet the flood 
and the destruction of Sodom, those two big events are special. They are unique. It's important that we say we can't extrapolate from the flood or Sodom into into modern day interpretations of natural disasters as if we know the mind of God, as if we know that God is judging those people for those specific sins. We know it in the case of the flood. We know it in the case of Sodom because it says so, because we have God's word on it. We have his 411. He tells us what he's up to here, and we don't always know. So this is unique. This is special. We better not extrapolate into modern-day natural disasters to know what God is up to. But whether we're talking about Sodom or the flood or even earthquakes, they are foreshadows of final judgment. The Bible makes that clear. And that's really where the New Testament picks up the Sodom story the most. Luke 17, just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. 2 Peter 2 and Jude and others They come back to this idea that the destruction of Sodom was a foreshadow of the final judgment when Jesus returns. And so we best beware. We best now flee from the wrath to come. And if we have fled from that wrath to come, we can be encouraged as we look back to the Sodom and Lot story. Because 2 Peter 2 goes on to say this, if he rescued righteous Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to get us through trouble. He got Lot out of Sodom. He can get you through whatever you're in. He'll get you through it. He doesn't mean he'll get you out of it right away. But he can get you through it. We come to the last scene now. Fourthly, the daughter's abomination, the birth of nations. Let's read these verses, starting in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger rose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down and when she rose. 
Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Here again we find ourselves saying to ourselves, does it actually say what I think it says? It does. Is it actually in the Bible? It is. Should it be? Apparently. We actually need this. It's here for our good. It's here for a warning. This is the last word on Lot. At least the last narrative word. This is the last bit of story we get on Lot. This is how it ends for those who persist in walking by sight, not by faith. Lot was inexplicably afraid. He ended up in the hills and in a cave after all. No longer his plush home of Sodom, no longer the city of Zoar. His daughters had survived with him, but now have no fiancés, no prospects, no children, no heritage. And as daughters of Sodom, they act every bit like Sodomites. Their situation seems impossible, and so they do the unthinkable. I won't spell it out. It's graphic and it's plain. It is a warning. It's also a painful reminder that like after the flood when Noah got shamefully drunk, we were reminded then that the flood didn't fix everything. Sin apparently went into that boat and came out the boat after the flood. And so with this scene in Genesis 19, we're reminded that Sodom's destruction was just and right, yes, but that's not the final solution. It's a painful reminder. It's, an, it's really an explanation as well. The firstborn bore a son who was the father of the Moabites. The younger bore a son. He's the father of the Ammonites. The Moabites and Ammonites eventually were among those nations in the land of Canaan, all those famous ites like the Girgashites and the Hittites, people who were famously wicked and who warred against Israel. Here's an explanation for that first audience in Moses' day. Where'd these people come from? Lot and his daughters. But it's an encouragement as well here. It's this story, yes, this story I just read from chapter 19 is an encouragement. An encouragement that our God often takes the darkest of moments and turns them into something really good. You got to fast forward about a thousand years till you come to a Moabite woman named Ruth. Ruth, there's a book of the Bible named after her. 
a Moabite has a book of the Bible named after her. You read that story and you find that she eventually has a son and the book ends like this. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David, King David. Ruth the Moabite was the great-grandmother of great King David. And it is in and through the line of David that we eventually get to Jesus, our King and Savior. And that's why Matthew in the New Testament begins his gospel account with the genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, which means son of Ruth, the Moabite, which means son of Lot's daughter. God often takes the darkest of moments and turns them into something really good. And that's what he did at the cross. The darkest moment in the Bible. We're used to it. But that's the darkest moment. The crucifixion, the murder of the Son of God. The sky went dark that day. And yet, it didn't go dark because Jesus was defeated. That day, he wasn't merely dying. It wasn't an unfortunate death or a morality lesson. Jesus was paying for sins. Something cosmic was happening. Jesus was interceding on our behalf. And on the third day, he rose again, proving that he interceded perfectly and completely for us. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while he stands, no tongue can bid me thence. Depart. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we would believe in the God of deliverance, in the God who's delivered us not just from Sodom, but from sin. Lord, we believe that those who believe are led out of darkness and out of your looming judgment. And if you were able to rescue Lot, then you are able to rescue us from sin and to rescue us from trouble. Help us to look to Jesus. Help us to not look back. We pray in his name. Amen.